Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday, wherever you all may reside. Hard to believe tomorrow is the start of a new month. I tell you, 2021 has moved by very quick. I mean, we've just finished the fourth month, but I feel like it has moved a lot faster. But, as the old saying goes, the older you get, time flies by a lot faster than you would like for it to. But the bottom line is this. We just have to make the most of the time that we do have each day, no matter how old we are, because we can't control how fast it goes. But as long as we're productive each day and doing good things, that's really what's important. Well, it, for starters, it is good to be back on the air. And we will be discussing in this uh, podcast segment of Paul Revere's ride about the ride itself as a collective effort. Not just a ride, but how about the midnight ride as a collective effort. So let's fasten our seatbelts and be prepared for some more uh, fun-filled information that probably most of you all did not know before that you will learn um, now. So here we go. Uh, Our first leadoff question is going to be the following. Was there bustling activity going on along Boston's Long Wharf on April 18th, 1775? Yes. And of course, when I think of bustling activity, I think of, you know, ships coming in, ships going out, uh, ships being repaired, ships, new ships being worked on, after all, it's more than just the ships coming in and out. You've got rope makers. You've got uh, people making um, wood, not just wood in general, but after all, you know, these uh, ships in the 18th century are wooden ships. Uh, we've got people who are making uh, sailcloth, you know, that is for the masts that would be uh, placed um, above uh, the ships. Um, what do you call it? Foundation. You know, that's the, the mast is what... Um, helps the uh, ship be able to um, guide in in the course that it's being steered in. So you've got people uh, from all sectors, obviously, who work in the shipbuilding industry, but I hate to tell you all this, the bustling activity that's going on along Boston's Long Wharf of April 18th, 1775, is not anything traditional prior to 1774. And what about 1774, folks? How about those um, coercive acts that Parliament passed? And one of those, one of the measures behind the coercive acts was uh, Parliament's closure of the Port of Boston, which was in result of the people in December of 1773 dumping over 300 chests of tea into the Charlestown River. So. Obviously, when the port of uh, Boston got closed, uh, the new port of uh, Massachusetts went north uh, to Salem, being an hour north. So the bustling activities that are going on in Boston on April 18th of 1775 revolve around British troops making preparations for their soon-to-be major move. You know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, why would you want to be doing all this uh bustling activity along a wharf where people's homes aren't that far by. I mean, they can see what the enemy is doing. 
On the other hand, though, I would suspect that many British officers, including just uh, regular soldiers, did whatever was necessary to disguise themselves. But no matter how well they could have disguised themselves, it was very obvious that, uh, for one, the people, that is the, the regular townspeople of Boston, know that their port has been closed for a year. And secondly, the only people who are going to have access to the port are the British. So whatever activity the British are engaging in along Boston's Long Wharf is not going to go unnoticed. Let me ask you all this. Um, you know, when, when I think of Boston, Massachusetts, I, you know, I think of Boston as, as a big city. But in 1775, Boston is not a city. It's a community, or what we call a town. But during 1775, is Boston a small community? The answer is yes. Although she is a small community, her people are ever so vigilant. They I should say they have remained ever so vigilant with British troops' presence everywhere. So, you know, here the British are trying to invoke fear into the people of Boston, but yet they just... They just haven't really figured it out or perhaps don't want to figure it out that, hey, here they are so bent or let alone uh, focused on being the mightiest empire in the world and here they represent themselves as being the elephant. What they just fail to realize is that there are mosquitoes coming from all directions. We're not, just ta we're not talking real insects here. We're talking about people who... Um, not just from all over Boston, but the outlying towns. What the British fail to understand is that the towns, uh, the countryside or the outlying towns outside of Boston, along with the people in Boston, are corresponding with one another over British troop movement. So here the British are thinking, well, the country, uh, we call it the, um, the countryside, you know, those people probably don't have a clue as to what's going on. And in fact, they do. They're just as smart as the city people. Of course, you know, the British didn't like the fact that people moved further inland from uh, the coastal uh, communities. And, a, and that to them was a threat because they thought, felt that those who moved into the backcountry did not perhaps have the same level of education or perhaps the same level of connection to where their own governments uh laid in terms of their uh, location along the coast, but how false that is. We're coming to realize now that people who lived in the backcountry, for the most part, especially in New England, did remain loyal to their, um, to their origins despite moving further inland. So the British really, um, I, I truly believe the British are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They think they may have the advantage just because they now have access to the port of Boston. But just because you have access to a big port and all of its wharves, it doesn't always necessarily mean that you're going to be able to outsmart the enemy on their own homeland. Now, did most Whig leaders remain in Boston by mid-April of 1775? And remember, folks, the Whigs are the equivalent of patriots. They want separation from England. Not just separation, they want independence from England. Ironically, um, very few Whig leaders um, remained in Boston by this time. Some of them had returned to Cambridge, 
Whereas John Hancock and Samuel Adams had departed weeks earlier to Concord, where the Provincial Congress convened. I'd say this is smart for um, Whig leaders to um, not all be confined in one place, because the, the longer that leaders, top leaders are confined to one place, the greater the likelihood that they could... Um, that a couple of them could be captured at once, or all of them could. So when they are spread out, um, if, so, if something happens to one person, then the uh, mission still is alive where other people can continue its operations. You know, as I said from the previous podcast, one of the biggest hurdles, General Thomas Gage faced a lot of hurdles, but one of them was knowing that if one key leader was captured, by his forces, there would be five to ten other people in line ready to take that man's place. This is where General Gage is fa- is really uh, fighting a losing battle. Just when he thinks he could strike at the heart of um, this movement by capturing a couple of people, what he doesn't realize is that with all these mosquitoes coming from different directions, the mosquitoes can repopulate and that is by repopulating, they will have new leaders to take over for the ones who either were captured, I should say who were captured. Now, we've mentioned about Dr. Joseph Warren a fair amount. Did he remain in Boston by mid-April? Yes, he did. By remaining in Boston, he becomes the primary go-to person for information. Paul Revere stays behind, but he... um, But he's on the go still. In other words, he might be in Boston for one day and then be somewhere else the next. But Dr. Warren is staying in Boston for good. He really will become the revolution's uh, key, not so much a keynote speaker, but a uh, lead spokesperson who will be at rallies, who will be making speeches left and right to uh, keep people's spirits uplifted to where they will know that someone is not only looking after them, but that the cause for independence itself will not be extinguished. So, since Dr. Warren is going to become the primary go-to person uh, in Boston, whereas others like John Hancock and Samuel Adams have gone on to Concord, what makes Dr. Warren so unique? Well, there are, are many things that make him unique, but if I had to pick one, I would say this, it does turn out, or it turns out rather, that Dr. Warren did in fact have special access to someone outside his primary interconnection circle. Of course, when I think of his interconnection circle, I think of the Sons of Liberty, uh, the North End Caucus, just to name a few examples. I'm sure many of you are thinking now, who in the world could he, Dr. Warren have had special access to that was outside of his primary inner circle connections? Well, it turns out that he had access to a confidant high up within the upper levels of British military command. This person was not an um, officer like a major or a uh, lieutenant colonel, but this person does have connections to the highest level 
of not just, we're not talking British society, but the British uh, command. Could it be possible that maybe this person married into, maybe not a well-to-do family, but married into someone who is within the, who works for the British military? It's possible. Dr. Warren, though, was the only person who had access to this person. The person outside this inner circle would be approached only when the situation was dire. So, in other words, Dr. Warren couldn't go to this person left and right and say, oh, this scuffle happened or this uh, tarring and feather incident took place. While tarring and feathering was serious, it probably was not as serious as what we're going to be learning about here shortly that will get uh, revealed. So remember, Dr. Warren would only see this person when the situation became absolutely dire. In other words, when all other options that were attempted or tried had failed. In terms of reconciliation, Dr. Warren knows that he's only got one solution left, and that is to go to this direct source. So historians to this day are, are still aren't 100% exactly sure whom on the British side did in fact provide Dr. Warren with sensitive, or I should say top secret information. However, most historians are convinced that the likely source of intelligence given to Dr. Warren, for whom he went to when the situation was dire, that person was none other than Margaret Kemble Gage. Gage, you know, General Thomas Gage, Margaret Kemble Gage, husband and wife. Remember, folks, Margaret Kemble Gage is a native of New Jersey. She had two brothers who were in the high um, military command. She even had a cousin as well who served as uh, Thomas Gage's um, uh, secretary, um, or, or I don't know exactly secretary, but a uh, high-level post. To think that um, your uh, that your spouse, your loved one, is could be suspected of going behind your back. To and in the eyes of the British. If this is true, that to them, that is treason. Now, if Margaret Kemble Gage was, in fact, Dr. Joseph Warren's confidential source, what information did she provide out of dire necessity? Well, for one, Dr. Warren would have gotten a layout of the British strategical plans. In other words, what direction would they have been going in? What cities were on their target list? Whom did they have on their list that they wanted captured? Okay, let's get to that point. Besides the overall layout of British strategical plans, how about the safety of Whig leaders like Samuel Adams and John Hancock, whom were at stake considering each man was in Lexington only a short uh, distance from Boston. Uh, Lexington's only about five miles east of Concord. And then how about um, another um, source of information that Dr. Warren would have gotten from Margaret Gage 
was uh, the the potential of uh, of uh, British forces burning stores. I'm not talking grocery stores, folks. I'm not talking about um, just some random store. But how about uh, stores that would have um, housed munitions facility, or that would have housed munitions, or what we call munitions facilities? And these, and many of these facilities were in Concord. After all, remember, folks, that uh, powder alarm um, incident, um, not incident in Concord, but where uh, many of the um, townspeople took out the um, munitions and only left a reserve amount. Now, of course, that was six miles northwest of Boston, but remember, Concord is also home to a great deal of um, munitions supply where, while there was a false alarm, uh, Despite it being a false alarm, the people of Concord were smart enough to take all the munitions out from the primary storage facility. But regardless, though, even though they've put it, they put them in other places, it doesn't mean that they are that those munitions supplies are still safe. So you think about this: you've got a layout of the British of British strategical plans to in, sensitive information regarding the safety of Whig leaders like Samuel Adams and John Hancock given that they were currently in Lexington, to the burning of stores or what we call munitions facilities at Concord. So Margaret Gage, folks, is really sacrificing a lot. And she is, in fact, she is no stranger to growing tensions between Britain and America. Both sides, Tories and Whigs, had suspicions about where her loyalties lied. So if Margaret Kemble knew about the, um, the mission herself, was there anybody else that, that her husband would have confided in whom he thought was a trustworthy person? Well, it turns out this man was uh, being uh, Lord Percy. Lord Percy. Lord Percy and Margaret Kemble Gage were the only two people who knew about the mission to seize John Hancock and Sam Adams, along with burning the munitions facilities. Percy himself, how he went about dis, um, discovering the unthinkable was that he was um, outside along part of uh, Boston's Long Wharf, but somehow overheard a handful of men discussing amongst one another how British troop movement in Concord would falter. As soon as General Gage heard about that, he knew right away that the source of betrayal was as high up, was very high up, but he knew that the source of betrayal only came from one person, and that was his wife. So, while we may not be 100% for sure in terms of a, de a definitive um, conclusion, Historians do feel very confident, though, for the most part, that Margaret Gage was the primary source of betrayal and that the evidence alone points out that there was a great likelihood that Dr. Warren's informant was none other than Margaret Kimball Gage, a woman of divided loyalties. I can tell you this much, as soon as uh, her husband found out about this, he sent her back to England. So think about that. Um, you know, in his eyes, his wife had violated his trust. And to prevent further damage, 
he has no other choice but to make sure that she goes back to England, where, I know this might not sound nice to say, but it is true, where she could be silenced um, and not cause any further ruckus uh, from uh, within um, from within uh, leadership uh, nearby. Now, I will mention something else about Margaret uh, Kimball Gage later on, uh, but for now, let's keep uh, the focus on um, on this uh, Midnight Ride as a collective effort segment. That's not to say that what um, what we just shared earlier isn't significant. It is 100% significant, but if we're not careful, we can certainly lose a focus of what we're um, trying to achieve here. What was Paul's, Paul Revere's mission on April 18, 1775? To warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock, whom he believed were prime subjects of British expedition to Concord. In other words, yes, we've been told for years that Paul Revere, his mission was to say, oh, the British were coming. Okay, well, that's only part of it. It was more than just saying a few little liners like the British were coming. But his primary mission on that night, yes, was to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock. And we will find out shortly how he is able to alert them. And remember, folks, he doesn't, we don't have telephones in 1775, so we don't, we don't have any true way of, um, we can't call up anyone and say, hey, you need to leave right now because the British are coming and they could be on your tail here soon. Now, as for Dr. Warren, he is um, overseeing um, dispatchers in the sense that dispatchers will be going in different routes to warn uh, people in the countryside about the imminent dangers that are growing. That is with not just the British buildup, but how the British within a few short hours will be making their way into Lexington and Concord. So Dr. Warren does, in fact, have other riders set up to send duplicate dispatches, but going different routes. And that makes sense, because if you have all of your dispatchers going in one route, what if they all get captured? And then the British get a hold of all this sensitive information. Then, they, then they're the ones that, that can complete the mission in terms of doing the opposite. That is quashing the rebellion. Okay, how about this question, folks? What was Paul Revere's chief concern? Well, of course, one of his concerns would have been, obviously, the well-being of uh, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. However, for starters, he became worried that British troops would stop all communications between Boston and the outlying towns. In other words, he was very concerned about the disp. Well, you know, Revere himself is a dispatcher, but he's also concerned about the other dispatchers, too, because, uh, you know, they are just as prompt. They are playing just as important of a role as he is. But he, what he's very worried about is that if a couple of dispatchers get caught, who's not to say that one of them under interrogation could break under pressure to where they rat out their fellow uh, brethren? It does happen. And then another concern he's got is, there again, alternative emergency plan routes should couriers not be nearby. So there again, 
you know, we've been le led to believe that uh, perhaps the couriers or the dispatchers all traveled in one direction. That's not true. They were going north and south and east and west. But what Revere's biggest concern is that, okay, if a couple of dispatchers get caught, who's going to make up for uh, lost time and who can still get the information to the, to the people at the right time? You know, we think we've always been led to believe that Revere himself had time, had a lot of time on his side, but he didn't. But as a collect, but think of this, folks, the Midnight Ride is a collective effort. I think this should tell us right here that, while yes, Paul Revere may have warned his fellow people about the British, about the oncoming uh, British presence, but in order for something to be a collective effort, it's got to take everybody else to do their part, big and small. Now, let me ask you this question. We all know what lanterns are. Lanterns are devices that we carry, uh, that we can carry to uh, take to from point A to point B. We also know that in, with lanterns, we can put um, candles and a candle inside for lighting purposes. Of course, we also have electric lanterns today, like, you know, for people who are going camping, they have you know, those uh, Coleman electric lanterns. So, yes, technology has changed uh, greatly over the last uh, 300 years. In some instances, a good thing. Of course, others could say it may not be such a good thing. But my next question to you all is this. Uh, lanterns, for starters, have been around since the 18th century, but at one time they were known as lanterns okay we all know lanterns are spelled l-a-n-t-e-r-n-s but in the 18th century the pronunciation was l-a-n-t-h-o-r-n-s lanterns paul revere sought out colonel william connaught's advice and it was through william connaught that uh, the strategy or the most or the historical strategy or game plan came into place where where it was a two-pronged approach if the british were to move out by water two lanterns would be placed in the north church steeple if the british were to move by land there would be one lantern placed in the steeple these lanterns emitted light that was uh, dim or faint, or rather, I should say, hard to see. On one hand, despite that light being hard to see, one would think that it would serve as an advantage to keep the British from really recognizing what, from it would keep them from recognizing what the true um, meaning of of what really was going on undercover. In other words, you don't want their light shining so bright that if you see people nearby, then you could be on to something such as a foiling a would-be um, plot from on the enemy side. So for Paul Revere, his biggest challenge is making lanterns visible from Boston to Charlestown being more than a quarter mile distant by water that is a big challenge onto itself 
and let me ask you all this question. What was Boston's tallest building in 1775? How about Christ Church, or what we would call the Old North Church? I think it's probably fair to say, though, in colonial times, that the tallest buildings in communities were churches. They just stood out. After all, I think it's fair to say that a church ought to have been the tallest building. Why? Because the church itself was an institution that represented an entire community. After all, in Virginia, you have the Anglican Church, the Church of England, in uh, Colonial Williamsburg days. Of course, there still is the Bruton Parish Church, but that was the biggest structure. After all, the church is grand. The church really is, in a sense, its own governmental institution or even a charitable institution. Uh, the church itself can be seen as a, a body that's looking after the destitute and the poor. People pay taxes to the church. So, you know, of course, we think of legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. What people do fail to realize is that if there was a fourth level of government in colonial day times, it was the church. So, there you have it, folks. Church and state, religion, politics. Um, of course, we haven't gotten into separation from church and state just yet. But just keep in mind that the reason why the church itself could be seen as a tall structure in the community is because of its uh, powerful dominance that it has over its people, not just controlling their daily lives, but but by being a powerful um, structure, it symbolizes order, it symbolizes unity, it symbolizes um, cohesiveness to where everyone is on the same page. There, in other words, the church itself would have no room for I, me, myself. At least I would like to think that. But yes, nonetheless, um, Boston's tallest building in 1775 is Christ Church, or what we call the Old, Old North Church. It would be at this building where Revere and his friends agreed to display the lanterns. Now, the church itself is located in the north end and is visible and was visible in Charlestown via water. However, there is a, there's an, um, some interesting issues, or issue rather, about this church. Well, for one, it's Protestant. That's not the issue. How about this? It turns out that the church was Anglican. Church of England? Of course, I, I always thought for a long time that whenever I heard of an Anglican church, it usually was Williamsburg. But then over time, I learned that there was an Anglican church or two in Charleston, South Carolina. There, are, there were uh, many Anglican churches even in New York, New Jersey, so the bottom line is, folks, the Anglican church isn't confined to just Virginia. But I think it is fair to say that most people like to think of it as being in Virginia because the first uh, colony, or Virginia was the first uh, of the colony settlements in the New World. And then Jamestown comes along, and that's where the Anglican church's uh, origins in colonial America begin. So how does this conflict get resolved given that the... Uh, that given that Christ Church being an Anglican church connected to Church of England, how does this conflict get resolved? Well, 
for one, the, this church got closed due to a fallout with the rector, whom just so happened to be a loyalist, and the congregation, they happened to be pretty much pro-patriot. But Paul Revere, he is a man of connections. He turned to church members and friends from vestryman Captain John Pullig, pulling to Sexton Robert Newman, including a friend Thomas Bernard. These men assisted in lantern preparations, or I should say installments, on the night of April 18, 1775. Pullig and Newman hung the two lanterns in the steeple window on the north side facing Charlestown, whereas Thomas Bernard stood guard. And I'm sure many of you all are thinking, how many flights of steps did these did um, Mr. Um, Newman and Mr. Pulling climb just to be able to achieve this mission without even getting caught? Well, we do know this, that Paul Revere wasn't present at the church building when the lanterns were hung. Instead, he returned home for temporary purposes before returning to the forefront. Well, it's a good thing to shuffle all the time, and I'm not just talking about shuffling for fun. If you know that the enemy is on your tail, you've got to be one step ahead of them, and that is you've got to move from one place to another. If you stay in one place the entire time, the greater the likelihood you could get caught and become a prisoner. As for Robert Newman and John Pulling, they climbed 154 flights of stairs. That's a lot, but they did it to the top of the church tower where both lanterns were hung. And believe it or not, folks, one of these lanterns, or rather one of the two lanterns, still survives to this day, and it's on display at the Concord Museum. Now, I don't know when my wife and I will get to Boston, but that is on our list. We certainly hope that we can get there next year. And if we do get there, we will certainly make it a priority to uh, even visit Lexington and Concord. And who knows, if we're lucky enough, we might be able to, to actually see this lantern, or one of the two lanterns, on display at the Concord Museum. Did Robert Newman and John Pulling have a near-close call with British troops right by church? Yes, they did. Of course, we have all would like to believe that everything was done without any... Um, what do you call it, near misses in terms of um, being caught only to be captured by the enemy, but we should be reminded that the work that not only Paul Revere undertook, but his friends who, whom helped him, and I think everybody else who is a part of this collective effort movement, they all knew what sacrifices were at stake. They knew that there was no guarantee that they might even come home alive. But this is the sacrifice you make, folks. This is the price you pay when freedom itself is at stake. You know, you're not going to sit back, or you ought not to sit back and say, well, I will worry, let somebody else worry about it. If it, if it really uh, concerns you that much, that's where you need to step up and say, hey, what can I do on my end to help make a difference? Remember uh, President John F. Kennedy's famous um, quote at his inaugural, well, of course, I wasn't alive in January 1961, but I've seen the footage of his speech, and I know his quote. I ask my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. 
And this is a prime example of this midnight ride is being a collective effort where it's more than just one a one-man show. Everybody is playing their part, and we're going to learn some more here shortly as to what other men were involved whom, whom uh, helped Paul Revere along the way. But I, but I should mention, as I did a moment ago, that yes, Robert Newman and John Poling did have a near-close call with British troops right by the church. As both men were exiting out the main door, British troops happened to be on the same street. But neither man had fully exited out. They probably just saw glimpses of the red coat attire of the British. So, if that was the case, historians know that both of these men found an alternative escape route via window. Of course, that would have had to have been from the opposite side of the, of the church building. But it's a good thing they had not fully exited out from where they were going because... Um, there's no guarantee that they might have even um, survived. So our next question is the following. Did Paul Revere choose to cross the Charles River on April 18th of 1775? And if so, did he have assistance? Yes, Paul Revere did choose to uh, perform this mission. He turned to Joshua Bentley, a boat builder, along with Thomas Richardson. It was in the late evening of uh, April 18th that all three men in Revere's boat sailed north from Boston toward Charlestown's ferry landing. Okay, late at night, it would be easy to think, okay, nobody else is out on the water. Nobody else would even, you know, try to uh, catch us off guard. Wishful thinking, folks. There were dangers up and down as Paul Revere and Thomas Richardson and, um, jo and Joshua Bentley were, um, were crossing um, along the river to make it to the uh, Charlestown Ferry. What kind of dangers were there? Well, it turns out that there was a, a British ship known as the HMS Somerset not far from Revere's boat. Four days earlier, on the 14th, this boat was stationed between Boston and Charlestown interrupting nighttime traffic between the two towns where boats of all sizes got seized. So think about this. The opposition, okay, well, we already know for one, the Port of Boston's closed, but it is probably fair to say that um, boats going through Boston and Charlestown on the Patriot side are probably trying to smuggle goods illegally to ensure that the people are being taken care of. The only problem is that while it's a valiant effort to try to do it at nighttime, it's probably still hard to outsmart the enemy. And once the enemy has seized all the boats, guess what the enemy gets? They get the prized possessions inside. And maybe the people, but if the people cooperate, maybe they might be spared. But what I do know is that um, is that when you uh, seize the enemy's ships, or ship for that matter, you will get their um, prized valuable cargo possessions. So, does Paul Revere um, survive and escape? Does I mean, does he get caught? No. How did Paul Revere and his two friends get spared? How about the presence of the moon? It turns out that the moon on the night of April 18th was um, 
It wasn't a crescent moon. It wasn't a half moon. But it was pretty much a full moon. Somehow, the moon's presence guided his um, ship to a safe passage where the HMS uh, Somerset never even spotted them. But considering that Revere's boat earlier was not far, I do know this much uh, that, not to get off track, but it is important to point out that many of our forefathers were dependent upon um, as, were dependent upon astronomy not just as a means for studying the celestial bodies and the galaxies, but they often relied upon the phases of the moon when it was safe to travel by water. I know for one that Thomas Jefferson, for example, his motto about traveling by water was the following. A boat itself had to be less than five years of age, and it had to have made one good crossing from America to Europe, and it had to make a good crossing from Europe over to America. Jefferson believed that if a boat itself was over five years old, it ran the risk of, um, of having um, greater liability out on the water. Well, what we fail to realize is that the boats that were going from, the, from Europe to colonial America and colonial America to Europe, they were all cargo boats, and they did transport people. After all, the ships that came to Jamestown in 1607, as well as the ship being the uh, Mayflower that came to uh, what we now know as uh, originally as Provincetown, which is still in uh, Cape Cod, but of course on to Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts, those ships were all cargo ships. Even the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery that came to Jamestown in 1607, they were cargo ships. So, remember folks, there's no such thing as Royal Caribbean Cruise Liner. Um, the ships that you go on, on your voyage to start a new life in America, it's a cargo ship. It's not the most pleasant um, form of travel, but that's pretty much the best that you're going to um, have accommodation-wise. But as for the moon's presence, it did uh, play a vital role in guiding Revere and his two friends to safety into Charleston's ferry, Charlestown's ferry landing. And the moon itself, even for our forefathers in general, for traveling, um, the phases of the moon were very crucial in understanding how the tides themselves, um, for high and low tide purposes, um, came about. So... You know, yes, we can see a full moon and appreciate it, but we have to be thankful for the fact that um, our forefathers depended upon um, the phases of the moon itself to ensure their safety when traveling along the uh, high waters. Now, once Paul Revere arrived into Charlestown, whom did he talk to right away? He talked to a fellow named Richard Devons, and there is a place in Massachusetts called Devons, Massachusetts, which is a uh, on the outskirts of Boston. So Richard Devons is a Charlestown Whig um, leader. He is a member to the uh, community of uh, committee of supplies. Rather, Devons warned Revere about British officers patrolling the highway, or rather, I should say, the road to Lexington. Okay, uh, you know it's great that Paul Revere is talking to. Um, 
not having people not only just having people help him like at the North Steeple Church but also crossing from Boston to Charlestown Ferry Landing but just talking to people in general this is how word's going to get out you know we can't just assume that oh everybody else is going to know I don't need to say anything to anybody oh yes you do if you don't say anything else to anybody how can it be a collective effort it just can't now who's John Larkin he is a deacon of the Congregational Church whom Paul Revere, whom provided Paul Revere with a horse that led him on his ride into Lexington. Okay, so, you know, Paul Revere didn't own the horse that he took on his ride, you know, warning the people of the, of the dangers that were lying ahead. He actually got this um, from a man named John Larkin. The horse itself that Paul Revere got from Mr. Larkin was known as a New England saddle horse. And why are they important? Well, for one, this type of horse is strong. It's big boned. That is, it's got a very well muscular built body. And it's responsive. In other words, it can respond to anything at any given moment, at any given um, notice. So as Paul Revere journeyed along the road, he spotted two horsemen in the distance. But as he rode closer, the horsemen were regulars, I should say British cavalry riders. Hmm, a little too um, close for, um, for what we thought was comfort, and now all of a sudden we're going from comfort to uncomfort, or uncomfortability, rather. So both of these horsemen tried chasing down Revere, but Revere got away and wound up traveling the Mystic Road. What's unique about the Mystic Road? Well, it goes over a wooden bridge, which eventually took him to a place called the Buckman Tavern, located at Lexington Common. It turns out that it was there that Paul Revere wound up meeting with the Clarks and the Hancock families, including Samuel Adams and John Hancock themselves. Okay, this is, so now Paul Revere is um, going to be um, advising Samuel Adams and John Hancock of what the British are uh, intending on doing. Okay, here's a big uh, question. Did Paul Revere cry out the following, the British are coming? No. So let's put that aside and uh, put, put that on an archived shelf, folks, because we should now know that Paul Revere did not say, the British are coming. He didn't cry out loud, the British are coming. No, he didn't do that. Historians do know that most New England Express writers, including Revere himself, referred to British forces or troops as regulars, redcoats to the king's men, and, believe it or not, as ministerial troops. So, if they didn't say the British are coming, they would have said something like this. The regulars are coming. The redcoats are coming. Because that's how, what, I mean, yes, it's one thing to say the British are coming. It could mean, yes, that it's the uh, British troops. But if the British are coming, even that is vague unto itself. So, therefore, it was probably best that Revere and his fellow comrades when expressing their warnings, 
that they said that the redcoats, the regulars, the king's men are coming. Whom would join Paul Revere in the journey from Lexington to Concord, warning people of British presence making its way further inland? His name is William Dawes. And we will learn more about him um, when I'm back on the air again with you all next. Now, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, I think it's fair to say that we have uh, uncovered some uh, myths, and we've already proven that uh, Paul Revere did not say that the British are coming in terms of crying that out loud. I think what we all are probably blown away by, even though it's never been confirmed 100% accurate, but historians do feel confident about about this, that uh, Margaret Kemble Gage herself was the one that provided Dr. Joseph Warren with the, uh, with high-level uh, sensitive information, or what we refer to as classified information. She, If it weren't for Margaret Kemble Gage, chances are Samuel Adams and John Hancock would have been captured. They would have probably been uh, sent to England, tried for offenses, never to be heard from again. So we have, uh, we really do have Margaret Kemble Gage to thank for, um, for uh, doing something that, in the eyes, of course, of loyalists, is treasonous or traitorous or traitorous rather. But in the eyes of the patriots, we find that to be um, ardent. We find that to be um, risk taking, but we find it to be uh, something that is very noble. And it might be fair to say that Margaret Gage, had Margaret Gage herself not, um, well, if, you know, her loyalties were very, um, they were fractured, they were down the line, but had it not been for her courageous move, the British would have had every opportunity to have just quashed this rebellion altogether. But it stayed alive because Margaret Kemble Gage was, able, was willing to put her life on the line to provide um, top sensitive information to Dr. Joseph Warren so that the, um, that the Patriots would be able to keep their flame alive, and that is independence from England, independence from a tyrant 3,000 miles away who has um, made his uh, subjects' lives miserable. Well, when I'm back on the air again with you all next, uh, we're going to be discussing about the capture. And we might be also be talking about some other stuff as well. So I want you all to think long and hard about the capture and what this means. I can tell you this much is that it's not, um, it's a partial, um, what do you call it? It's a partial setback. But it will be something that does get resolved to where independence itself doesn't get um, completely extinguished altogether. Thank you for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Thank you again for being such ardent and um, faithful listeners. Uh, if it weren't for people like you all, I'm not sure where my podcasting would be, but thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Uh, continue to listen. Continue to spread the word out to others who are interested in uh, listening to uh, podcasts, most notably um, his history ones. Tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky ceiling. Take care and stay safe.